пришли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to SRB Podcast, where each week we cover topics relating to Eurasian politics, history, and society. Two guests today. First is Balas Yarabek on the state of Minsk II and Ukraine. Then I talked to Valerie Sperling about masculinity, femininity, and sex in Russian politics. Balas Yarabek is a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where his research focuses on Ukraine and Eastern Europe. His most recent article is, What Did Minsk II Actually Achieve? Balas Yarabek. We're not even a week into Minsk II, and there's little by way of a ceasefire, and the rebels have taken to Baltava. And once again, Merkel, Holland, Poroshenko, and Putin spoke on the phone today and agreed that the Minsk provisions need to be implemented strictly and in their entirety. Uh, what's your assessment of where things stand now? I think that, uh, surprisingly, I think that the Minsk agreement now can actually be alive um, after the fall of the Baltava. Um, uh, the, my, the, my rationale uh, and logic is, uh, is coming from those reports who, who were saying that most of the Minsk agreement, and it was a marathon 16, 17 hours talk, uh, was about the Baltsevo. Uh, it was about the dispute between Putin and Poroshenko, uh, who is holding the Baltsevo or whether the Ukrainian troops are encircled. So, you know, after this meeting, essentially that question needed to be solved. And with the fall of the Valtsevo, that question is solved. So I think now there is a chance uh, that the Minsk agreement and the ceasefire, as a number, uh, as the first uh, point of these 13 points of the Minsk agreement, can actually really, really hold. I mean, this is what we see uh, today as well. Um, uh, I also think that, you know, like as, as much as after the first or before the first Minsk agreement, um, uh, the Russian tactic was to make sure that Ukraine feels defeated. Uh, and as much as it was Ilovaisk in, in August, uh, when the Russians directly stepped in, uh, now the Russians again directly step in. Uh, but certainly there is a difference uh, compared to the Ilovaisk massacre. Um, the Ukrainian uh, soldiers are kind of better treated. Uh, this time, you know, the number of killed uh, within the retreat, as well as the number of POV, the, uh, the prisoners of war, um, is much less. Uh, and based on the local reports, the Ukrainian soldiers are much better treated. Um, so this gives a hope uh, that the actual another 12 points, which uh, the four parties, the Normandy four, elaborated in um, uh, in Minsk, uh, can be uh, can be um, taken seriously as well. So you think there was an understanding between the Normandy four during the negotiations that the situation of the Baltava needed to be solved before, or there was going to be some allowance for the, that situation to be solved before the, the, the protocols are put in place in, in effect? I, yes, I think nobody is willing to talk about it, obviously, but essentially this is my, this is my rationale that what, what happened. Now, the Western powers seem to be split on what to do about Russia. On, on the one hand, you have the Americans toying with the idea of arming the Ukrainians, and I wonder if if the defeat in the Baltava might increase that, that rhetoric here in the United States. And then you have Germany and France on the other side kind of looking for a political settlement, and, and one that would probably require a lot of compromise on the part of Ukraine. What, what's your assessment of the West's approach towards Russia? Well, I think, and again, much depends whether the ceasefire is going to hold, uh, whether the reaction, I mean, how, how the reactions are going to be. Uh, if the ceasefire is going to hold, the arming debate, the arming Ukraine debate, obviously, is going to be less relevant, simply because if there is no war, uh, you know, arming Ukraine is, 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 is much, much less relevant. Uh, I also think much will depend uh, uh, on uh, not only on the ceasefire, but what's going to happen in Ukraine. Um, uh, simply, I see, I see, first of all, I see that, that Putin goals in Ukraine uh, are kind of uh, coming together. Um, uh, first, Crimea, uh, which was not even basically essentially mentioned uh, during the Minsk summit, uh, is firmly uh, Russian. Uh, essentially, the first, this was the first big goal after the Maidan, uh, what the Russians, whether this was a perceived threat uh, or a real one, it's very hard to tell. I think it's much more a perceived one. But the Russians felt that they had to secure Crimea. They did it on their own. Uh, and Donbas, uh, you know, essentially is a frozen conflict. If a year ago anyone would say that Ukraine is going to end up with a frozen conflict, 
we would say no way that's obviously this is this is just uh, you know a way too dramatic scenario but but essentially a frozen conflict blocks ukraine status uh and, and not really uh the west could move on with or ukraine could move on toward european or euro atlantic integration the process could move on the reforms could move on but you know like it's unlikely that ukraine would be end up uh in the eu and nato in the current uh circumstances so that's about that's about the russia uh strategy what you see in the west uh, particularly in the western media uh the opinion makers are already not talking about ukraine that much and i think it's a mistake and i'm going to return to that but talking about the different other threats what what putin's russia um uh, is is actually making or providing toward the west namely you know russia is going to attack the baltic states you know is moving against the integrity or the unity and and essentially against the nato and the eu uh you know so this is not only about ukraine so this justification uh ukraine is essentially is a uh um subject uh of of vis-a-vis russia and i think it's a big mistake because this is not exactly how we can address a the ukrainian crisis which is indeed significant um if the ceasefire holds then uh, you know we returning i mean the political conflict returns to kiev uh and with the with the current economic severe economic and and, and and the social situation the pol- any political conflict will look or appear uh and will be uh more severe as well uh so this is the time where actually we can and we should aid ukraine uh and not that much uh dealing with russia particularly if russia is actually gonna um gonna uh uh do what actually russia signed uh uh in in minsk so uh what i'm trying to say is you know we're still dealing with the ukrainian crisis so we should deal actually much more with ukraine and a little bit less with russia and what kind of uh aid would you or assistance would you recommend well you know there is this new uh uh imf uh, aid package but the issue is not only the money uh although you know like how ukraine is seriously treated by russia uh and how less seriously unfortunately treated by the west russia was able and willing to raise money uh remember a year ago essentially putin bought or bribed or threatened yanukovych with 15 billion dollars right uh and then it was it was able and willing and capable uh to raise the military option as well um including sending directly soldiers um uh to ukraine which uh, you know quite a few uh never returned so 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 russia is willing to to provide uh or or suffer the sacrifice for ukraine and the west is really having a problem both with raising the necessary funds but ukraine needs uh i mean if you're taking a look at the imf bailout package they talk about 40 billion dollar but essentially is is the new package is 5 billion extra additional money over the top of the current program which is 17 billion and promises and and hopes essentially that the other western countries will come up with the rest so it is not a firm um uh package but obviously it's much better than nothing and i think the imf was extremely flexible um and the question is uh how this program is going to be quickly started to be implemented because ukraine is really on the verge of of bankruptcy the other issue is you know and here comes the military assistance as well uh the biggest issue is not only the money or the weapons uh, as you also mentioned but the management how we can actually help kiev to rebuild a the state uh i think in the west what what is perhaps the lack of understanding about the maidan we really seen that in a post orange kind of romantic uh framework you know when the good uh won over the bad and and ukraine therefore ukraine deserves support well you know like maidan was very violent and and in the way uh it's not essentially not only their fault uh you know it's a reaction on on, on the situation but essentially maidan not only broke down yanukovych but broke down how it was played out but broke down the central government the central authority uh uh as such and 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 the ukrainian state uh, not only yanukovych but the ukrainian state with it collapsed and what we've seen in the past year is this frantic um frantic effort uh, to rebuild the state more most of all the authority and the legitimacy vis-a-vis the ukrainian citizens you know we witnessed two elections um we were witnessing um uh you know forming power relationships uh between uh all the you know the power players uh and but we also kind of have to witness that all the old all the the new ukraine has the same old players 
and and they're the ones who you know kind of playing with their old games unfortunately uh only renaming ukraine as a new one now you know what I'm, essentially i'm trying to say is that this frantic effort is much more you know two elections for real uh, obviously you know like uh, within the conditions these were fantastic free and fair uh, and democratic um and ukrainian citizens were you know like the the election the turnout were, were also like very high but it's not enough you know like the essential what the state is providing and how the state is managing the resources and relationship with the citizens the so-called social contract is what you know what is kind of in uh, in at stake and what the ukrainian citizens are seeing so far and, and this is pretty much more and more visible in the polls the mistrust over the government you know like and and um and essentially uh as the ukrainians are are failing to believe that this government is going to represent their interest vis-a-vis their own interest uh you know th- that's really putting into a new ukraine uh uh into a question what we see is much more rhetoric much more pr and actually less action and this is pretty much the old ukraine what we have been seeing to collapse with the maidan and not much the post maidan ukraine which we believe that it's going to be happen and is that post maidan ukraine ideal still alive amongst the politically active segments of the population oh absolutely i mean what you know like the absolute positive issue in in, in ukraine is is the self organization uh in, you know I, i i lived there six years and and we always described ukraine civil society as very vibrant uh, and dynamic particularly vis-a-vis the entire region uh, but now is like you know the self organization is is on a very high uh, an extremely high level um uh but 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 you know the self organization civil society is not going to replace the state um and and all the players around the state i mean certain people were co-opted into the parliament you know but what what both the fighters uh you know the battalion leaders uh, as well as civil society actors but when you look at the numbers and compare it to, to their numbers and capacity essentially in this power relationship and the power structure that is you're going to you're going to see that there's a very very low minority what essentially left out is Sergei Leschenko is trying to do an insider journalism uh you know from the parliament which is very much appreciated uh because he keeps sending very honest dispatches from the parliament what's going on but that's not you know this is not what we were expecting not only from him but essentially from a postmodern ukraine what i'm mostly missing is and uh you know it's a responsibility of the of the ukraine elites as such is the key word of the maidan was dignity and and honesty obviously and this dignity and honesty how they treating their own citizens is not there you know you see you hearing great promises you hearing fantastic big words but then you then you're going to see very little action and i think the ukrainians are increasingly frustrated with that they're willing to they're willing to swallow a lot of sacrifice right but at the same time they would like to be treated as normal citizens and that would be the essence of the you know this dignity and honesty uh uh of the new social contract between uh the authorities in Kyiv and 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 the Ukrainian citizens now how it could be play out give you an example well you know like promise us things which you can actually able willing to do don't promise immediate reforms on certain issues which you cannot deliver do these three things which you can deliver and promise us that now don't promise to take over the maidan don't promise i mean sorry take over donbas you know don't promise us to win over russia you know and so on and so on and so on promise something which we can believe that you can deliver this is what the ukraine is mostly missing and do you think that the ending of the conflict in the east or at least freezing the conflict and ending kind of military uh, operations is key to pushing forward these more incremental promises oh absolutely absolutely i mean i i you know i just read a very interesting interview with one of the maidan activists who went then to Crimea get beaten up then returned and get volunteered and ended up in Debaltsevo survived and uh, was an interview in a russian media actually and uh, with him uh in a, uh, and and you know he was saying if not this war we could do so many things uh and and i think most a lot of people feels in this way and a lot of people and you see that their attitude even the patriotic western ukraine was doing serious draft dodging they don't kind of believe that this war is essentially is about them anymore and they don't see that this is really the sacrifice we should do you know obviously donbas always had a special kind of crimea as well by the way a kind of special status um 
um, uh, vis-a-vis the Ukrainian society, simply because it was always taken as a kind of mafia state, right? I mean, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the Donetsk rules, very authoritarian, you know, most of the oligarchs were actually coming from there, you know, like obviously the big uh, GDP generator um, uh, industries were there. So essentially, you know, like kind of getting rid of the Donbass in brackets, obviously, uh, could be also a heralding that, okay, this is our Ukraine industrial post-Soviet mafia or half-mafia uh, heritage. We actually nothing to do with the new Ukraine. So, so I think it could be, you know, like a kind of ballast, something, a package, which if, if the Ukrainians are able, but as a society, obviously, willing to leave behind and not look at something like they have to carry on, that that could help. Uh, at the same time, you know, from the elite viewpoint, um, and, and I hate to say it, and, but this is something also I think it's part of the story. The war was also a cover story. Why not to do other reforms? Uh, essentially, why not? Um, why not doing particularly anti-corruption measures? Just think about the Maidan shooting. Uh, you know, there is no investigation. We don't really know what happened. I mean, beyond the BBC and a couple of other, uh, you know, foreign investigations. Right? There is not a proper investigation. Uh, we seen the first um, uh, high-level arrest, Yefremov, right? The Luhansk oligarch uh, and former MP, party of region. Uh, a, a local local lord, you know, but it's most it's more it's it's most seems like you know if it would happen in Georgia, the Americans would would call it selective justice, right? So you know if you put that into the context, this is not what the kind of new Ukraine should be built upon. Uh, and 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 lastly, you know, it's again the power relationship. Uh, what is the key power trends in a new Ukraine is Petro Poroshenko as the president, Yatsenyuk as the prime minister, and Kolomoisky you know, as a Yantarpetrov's regional governor. And, and the entire Ukrainian politics, the, the most important trends are essentially the political infighting between these, between these, uh, these power centers. Now, this is not the new Ukraine. This is totally the old Ukraine. But I, I also wonder, you do have another factor now, and that is you have groups of armed uh, battalions that I wonder, given the situation on the military front, how they will regard the, the political front. Well, frankly, if and returning to the military assistant, if, if a military assistant would make sense, it's exactly this. Like how, how a Ukrainian military, not that much the weapons. I mean, Ukraine has a serious weapon industry, uh, you know, and, and I think the more sustainable they can do, you know, the, the, the better for them, uh, and, and especially for a longer term. But essentially, it's the management, again, like the state management of the war, the state management of the military structure. Um, uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I considered from that viewpoint, the National Guard is a great idea. Um, but, you know, like what you see is that these battalions are kind of formally, at least, structured in various ministries. Uh, at the same time, you know, like here comes again a Ukrainian reality check. Who is the Minister of Interior? Avakov, right? Who is Avakov? Well, he's one of the former oligarchs from, from Kharkiv, who is uh, the current mayor, Kernes' arch enemy. Like, they were running each other. It was a very dirty election a few years ago, which Kernes in the end won. Uh, but many really doubt that that was any, anything to do with actual real elections of the imperial elections, right? So, you know, Kernes in Kharkiv is openly saying, I just read an interview with him two days ago. He's saying, look, I mean, for me, Kernas, I mean, sorry, Avakov is not the Minister of Interior, but this is, you know, a former uh, oligarch from Kharkiv. So this is this regionalization, right? Or and this is the lack of integrity as a country and these regional and power relationships, which matter still way much more when it comes to uh, assessing Ukrainian politics than, you know, the, the integrity of the state. So what, what that, and, that, and that would be like if the West can step into, uh, and there are now various structures to assist that, but the West needs to learn more um, uh, in both the EU uh, and United States as well. But we need to learn more about what real Ukraine, the current Ukraine is, if we want to assist. You know, essentially what is what I considered very kind of interesting comparison. Russia has much deeper knowledge, much deeper awareness, much stronger, deeper ties and relationship with Ukraine. And therefore, is much more familiar. Therefore, it can exploit. Um, these weaknesses and the relationship um, for its own benefits. The West is much more dealing with needs, 
which is self-created and, and partly generated, like the Orange Revolution, therefore our partners really want to do reforms. It was a Maidan, therefore our partners really want to do reforms. And then running into these frustrations every time that mm, essentially, you know, like it's a kind of a bit delusional attitude vis-a-vis -a, -vis a hardcore um, Russian, you know, exploitive at the same time based on realistic relationship with Ukraine. And unless we're moving, unless we're moving toward a more realistic Ukraine, we cannot really assist it. But there, I, I wonder at the same time how much of there is a will on the part of Western powers to actually get that involved in Ukraine. On, and I sometimes from reading the, the approach of, of Western leaders to the situation, you get the impression that they just want it to go away. Oh, yes and no. I mean, uh, obviously, obviously. Well, look, I mean, the West currently really uh, uh, missing the capacity, uh, right? Uh, or you can say the political will as well to deal with Ukraine. Um, simply, this is not, I mean, the association agreement was not developed uh, really to, to transform Ukraine into an EU membership. It was developed instead of it. Uh, we kind of frame that, that association agreement, as the first most important step toward the membership. But it was no membership promise attached. We couldn't even have the politic garner the necessary political will, right? To promise a European country that it can be a European Union member. That's the real situation. So we came up with this kind of steps to, to making sure so we can, you know, like, it's also, I always said that, you know, essentially it was the association agreement from the EU was a reaction on, on Ukraine's orange revolution. When Ukraine first time was put into the map of the EU, um, at the same time where essentially Ukraine become a direct EU member uh, after the launchment in 2004. This has actually happened at the same time, right? So, so you know, we, within this context, the EU's relationship with Ukraine is very new. You know, compare that to Russia, which has, you know, like a thousand years, or 800 years relationship, a thousand year relationship, right? So, so these are, these are important things which we often often forgot uh, that this is something, you know, like uh, we need to kind of get get into realistic. So I think, but what I say, yes, because essentially it's a direct neighbor. Uh, it's the biggest European crisis um, in the past 20 years, uh, after the Balkan War, certainly. Uh, and it's, it's the first local crisis, which really has serious global um, uh, circumstances because Russia is a direct player, or Russia is directly engaged. It's a nuclear power, obviously, and it's the biggest country in the world. And finally, uh, given all of this, and, and you've, you've painted quite a, a dark picture, I have to say, especially since, you know, this week is one year since Yanukovych's ouster from power. Uh, where do you see things going for the future? Well, I, I'm sorry to be dark. <laughs> I was more <laughs> trying to be real. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, but I, I, I took, I mean, uh, thanks for the feedback. Uh, I think you know, like when it comes, like the only positive things is really the, the civil society. I mean, the society, uh, you know, civil society is a bit overused in the Western, uh, in Western circumstances. You know, the society, again, the self-organization. When you look at that, Ukraine has a very bright future. Uh, I, I think it's, it's fascinating to see, uh, you know, that process, obviously. And we should focus on that way much more. Um, at, the, at the same time, you know, Western governments are dealing with government. And that's one of the reasons that dysfunction, the dysfunctionality of the Kiev government is why I believe that, you know, Ukraine uh, uh, future or immediate future essentially is uh, realistically viewing is, is, is not that positive. Uh, unless we were able to restore, we were able to help Kiev to restore relationship um, um, with their own, the social contract with their own citizen, uh, as well as Kiev. Um, the state authority or the central authority vis-a-vis -vis the regions. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to see more and more fragmentation uh, in Ukraine. Uh, this is essentially what, you know, like returning it to what Russia wants and what Putin wants, essentially what Putin wants, because this is, again, uh, 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 we often saying that Russia lost Ukraine, which is partly true at the same time, because Ukraine is so fragmented uh, and the poverty is so fragmented in Ukraine vis-a-vis -vis the regions that Putin can control Ukraine with, with, because of these fragmentations and fragility much easier than, uh, than, uh, than before. So what I, what I expect is, uh, you know, I, I hope that there's going to be a stabilization, uh, especially if the ceasefire holds, 
and uh, and uh, and and the parties are going to be serious enough to move toward the political framework. I think it would be very essential to Ukraine because that would actually fit into the necessary reform process. You know, once you know Donbas autonomy uh, could be easily part of the decentralization, which is one of the major political reform goals of Kiev anyway. Right. So these things are not mutually exclusive. I see these things mutually inclusive, but but once Kiev will focus fully on that, and this is where the West, and you know, not God forbid, but perhaps even Russia uh, could join to support, not only exploit, then Ukraine could have a future, uh, a positive one. I mean, a bright one, if particularly because this is where the civil society, you know, the, the essential self-organization can also uh, play a very strong role. If we continue the zero-sum game with Russia, right, then unfortunately this fragmentation is going to turn even further against a bright future of Ukraine. It's going to be more and more problematic to even aid. It's going to be more and more problematic um, uh, uh, to have a normal relationship, a normal social contract uh, for the Ukrainian citizens uh, and Kiev. So I, I would say I even wrote a piece about the feudalization of Ukraine. Essentially, what what realistically what I think. Unfortunately, the second scenario is more real. So we're going to see not federalization or decentralization of Ukraine, but de facto feudalization when the regions and their strong masters or landlords uh, or oligarchs, you name it, uh, you know, essentially is going to treat their own uh, their own uh, uh, regions as their victims. Uh, give you one example, which I think it's, you know, two, Yitropetrovsk is one of them already. Um, once the decentralization is going to start, uh, you know, Kolomoysky has his own private army. Now he's going to have his own uh, own uh, police as well. Uh, the Dnepropetrovsk police already reports to the Dnepropetrovsk governor, not to the minister of interior. Speaking about central authority, right? And the second, uh, and this is where Europe, could shoot, and particularly I'm from Slovakia as a Hungarian, uh, you know, would be very important to watch is the Transcarpathian, uh, which essentially is already governed as a fiefdom of the Bologna brothers. And both Hungary and Slovakia realizing that, unfortunately, I mean, uh, that this could be an issue. Uh, you know, es- essentially the next conflict could be even there. Uh, coincidentally, perhaps not. Uh, Medvedchuk was visiting Transcarpathian several times uh, in the past few months. So uh, essentially, you can see that something is cooking up there, uh, and this is directly at the border um, with Slovakia and Hungary, essentially with the EU. So this feudalization can can unfortunately create a lot more trouble both for Ukraine and, and its relationship with the, uh, with the EU. That was Balas Yarabek, a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where his research focuses on Ukraine and Eastern Europe. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. I'll be back after a musical break. A weakling... Weighing 98 pounds Will get sand in his face When kicked to the ground And soon in the gym With a determined chin The sweat from his pores As he works for his cause Will make him glisten and gleam and with massage and just a little bit of steam <laughs> he'll be pink and quite clean he'll be a Nutritious, high protein, and swallow raw eggs. Try to build up his shoulders, his chest, arms, and legs. Such an effort, if he only knew of my plan. In just seven days, I can make you a man. He'll do press ups and chin ups. Do the snatch, clean and jerk. He thinks dynamic tension. My next guest is Valerie Sperling. Valerie Sperling is a professor of political science at Clark University. 
Her most recent book is Sex, Politics, and Putin, Political Legitimacy in Russia, Valerie Sperling. Why don't we first talk about what is the relationship between political legitimacy, gender norms, and sex? The reason, um, the reason I wrote the book was because I was interested in the relationship between political legitimacy and gender norms and sex, because it struck me that in Russia, you know, a few years ago, starting, you know, maybe in 2010 or so, there were all these manifestations of feminine or of women's sexuality being mobilized on behalf of political leaders. Um, so, for example, there was that birthday calendar for Putin, the erotic birthday calendar put out by the students at Moscow State University. And then there were a series of other, you know, similar kinds of phenomena. And I thought about how, you know, when we think about politicians, especially male politicians, mobilizing their masculinity as a legitimation tool, we don't necessarily think about how women's bodies also get mobilized into that into that process of legitimation. And so that's why I started thinking about gender norms and politics more broadly. And I think where sex comes into it, you know, it comes into it in one sense with the use of women's bodies sort of for, uh, you know, to advertise men's political legitimacy. But it also comes into it um, with homophobia, because that's another tool that has to do with, you know, with sexual orientation anyway, if not directly with uh, with sex, although to a certain extent with sex. Um, that's another tool that comes into the political process as a way that politicians can insult each other, you know, as saying they're insufficiently manly, um, and whereas, you know, they might be highly masculine being, you know, and have a proper sexuality, especially I think this works in Russia, um, you know, their opposition is somehow insufficiently manly, is gay, um, and so forth. So I think that's how it, I think that's how it works in. And how has this boost Putin? I mean, when we see images of Putin, he he's always uh, kind of very it's like a hyper masculinity, um, you know, with all of these muscles and doing manly things all the time. And, and of course, a lot of his uh, his public performances are are based in this kind of manliness too. Um, why are these part so so central to his uh, political legitimization throughout the two thousands? You know, I think it has a lot to do. I think Putin's manliness as his public political persona, I think it actually has a lot to do with the 1990s um, and to a certain extent uh, with what came before. So in one sense, you know, his manly manness is a contrast to the Soviet gerontocracy, right? He's not a leader like that. Another contrast, though, and a more relevant one, I think, is to Yeltsin. Because if you think about what Yeltsin's presidency was like um, by the mid-1990s. So we're not talking about, you know, 1990, uh, 1991, standing on the tank, you know, and that sort of manly display in a way. But more by the mid-1990s, Yeltsin has become this kind of boozy embarrassment. You know, he tries to conduct the Berlin police orchestra while he's drunk. And um, and so there's there's that contrast to Yeltsin. But I think more importantly, it's the whole context of the 1990s where Russia has lost its masculinity, if you will. Um, it's lost its superpower status. It's lost its status um, from an ideological perspective to the extent that anybody still believed in communism, you know, as a forward-thinking ideology. That had been dismantled by the 1990s. Um, when capitalism comes in, there's a lot of impoverishment in Russia. So there's a lot of, um, there's a great uh, loss in pride in Russia, and that was visible in public opinion surveys. And so I think when Putin comes to power, you know, his his lifestyle is sort of conducive to showing him as, you know, a, a healthy, sober, decisive, strong, tough guy. And that's all reinforced by his background in the KGB, which is seen also as a sort of sober, tough, decisive, don't mess with us kind of institution. Does this work, this discourse? Do you think it's effective? Well, um, it's very hard to say, right? It's hard to say because the standard public opinion polls don't go out and ask, like, why do you like Putin? Is it because of his, you know, muscular physique? Is it because of his, you know, policies and this, that, or the other thing? What we do see is that he's been extremely popular, even despite um, major problems, you know, so uh, so for example, in um, 
this past year, you know, after um, after the ruble collapse, after the sanctions hit, and after the price of oil started dropping, um, Putin's public opinion ratings were improving. You know, they were skyrocketing, and and they stayed at that level. They were skyrocketing, of course, because of uh, of Crimea being um, being annexed to uh, to Russia, but they stayed high even after. The ruble crashed, and so that says there's something. Maybe it's not his muscular physique, but there's something about the tough guy attitude, and and where it ties into, I guess, the 1990s also, is the idea that we're not going to let anybody push Russia around. We're not going to let the West or Western Europe tell us how to run our domestic policy, and we're not going to let them tell us how to run our foreign policy either. And so, you know, if what the West wants is to weaken Russia. We're just going to tell them where they can go, and we're going to take Crimea if we want Crimea, and we're going to support the rebels in Ukraine, um, and sort of have that muscular foreign policy. And I do think that the population, in large part, likes that. So I think they like the projection of masculinity abroad, um, if you if you will. Yeah, and even I mean the way Putin portrays his rule of Russia. I mean, there's always these kind of television footage of him. Yeah, you referred to it as topping in the book, topping other officials, kind of dominating them, where he castigates them in a kind of public manner. He feminizes them to a large extent. But there's also even in representations of Putin with other foreign leaders. There was that recent tweet by Dmitry Rogozin showing Putin with I think like a tiger or something, and Obama with a small dog. Exactly. Exactly. It was. Um, this was right after the downing of the MH17 plane. After a new round of sanctions, that's right. Rogozin tweeted out these two pictures side by side of, and it's it's Putin petting a leopard, and, and Obama is cuddling a white poodle. And Rogozin's caption was, "We have different values and different allies." Right. So you know, so for the United States, so maybe it's a French poodle, right? Like that's our ally. And for Putin, you know, he has this calm mastery over the wild animal who's tough and maybe, you know, maybe violent when necessary. And now, so you have on the one hand a really strong, like, hyper-masculinity being reformed and reconstituted in the 2000s. What does that stay for a femininity? Do you get a, a kind of an extreme form of femininity as a result? Um, I don't know if it's as a result so much. I think that, um, I mean, I do think that political legitimation in this way requires there to be a sharp divide between what masculinity is and what femininity is. Um, so in other words, you can't really be effectively masculine and macho unless you're contrasting it to something, namely being a woman, you know, so then there has to be a kind of sharp divide, you know, between those two, which is why homophobia also enters into the picture, right? You have to be able to show that other men are a little bit womanly if you want to, if you want to put them down. But, um, but the femininity, and so femininity in that sense gets, you know, gets mobilized to support masculine. You need to be able to call on like traditionally attractive feminine, you know, women to support you and your, and your position. But where does that whole um, sort of exaggerated femininity, exaggerated masculinity come from? I, I think in a way there's a Soviet legacy operating there, you know, during the Soviet era, there was nothing in the way of consumer goods and that washed over into makeup and fashion, you know, and there was this kind of background ideology about men and women being the same, even though of course men and women were not treated the same and didn't, you know, enjoy the same, um, you know, didn't enjoy the same kinds of daily life, uh, you know, division of labor was very strict in the in the Soviet Union. But in the 1990s, with the introduction of commercial capitalism, you get the introduction of the same stuff, you know, that's common to commercial capitalism everywhere, which is the objectification of um, bodies, and especially of women's bodies. And, you know, Helena Gashilo and Vlad Strukov write about glamour in the 1990s and how, you know, you have all, all of a sudden you have these glamour magazines that are teaching um, people with even a little bit of, um, of money, they're teaching people how to behave. And it's not just that they're teaching them how to, you know, how to behave in general, they're teaching them very specifically, how should you look and behave if you're a man and how should you look and behave if you're a woman? And if you want to be an appealing woman, then all of a sudden there are all these things that you need to do. And, you know, I think that we're all probably familiar with the sort of, um, you know, the, the super diabushka, you know, the hyper feminine, um, super dressed up even in the middle of the day, uh, look, 
that I think starts becoming common then in the 1990s. And I think that's really only accelerated. You know, I remember, I remember going, just one little story, I remember going to a roundtable to discuss Naomi Wolf's book, The Beauty Myth, while I was in Russia um, a couple of summers ago. And one of the women who spoke up and was talking about the book, she said she was Russian and she said she had lived in England for a while. And she said, I was so surprised. Um, the women there go to work in clothing that I wouldn't even take out the garbage. In. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a woman, you know, at a feminist roundtable. Right. So I think there just is a different, you know, this maybe it's just more European standard. Well, you actually, you know, this leads into something else that you have a long discussion about in the book, and that is the attitudes towards women and towards sexism uh, in in Russian society. And it was interesting to note that on on the kind of amongst pro Kremlin activists, you have this really kind of chauvinist ideology, which is is not so so much so surprising. But it it was I was quite surprised to see the same rhetoric amongst anti Kremlin activists. Can you comment a bit on that? So yeah, in the, in the book, it's a little more subtle because some of the pro-Kremlin activists were actually very aware of sexism um, and, and some of the anti-Kremlin activists also were very aware of, uh, of sexism and talked about it. The, um, you know, one of the, one of the pro-Kremlin activists was, you know, was saying that she does feel, you know, she does feel a little bit of that. And she, you know, she in particular, she's, she's actually a Duma deputy now. She was, um, she was uh, she made it in on, in the last uh, in the last election on the party list, but um, you know she's a very you know classically attractive, tall, beautiful woman. And she says, yeah, you know people do look at me and they think that's got to be somebody's lover or somebody's girlfriend. <laughs> you know they don't value me for what thoughts I might have or what ideas I might have. They might not think that you know I'm an intelligent, capable person. So there was certainly some there was certainly some comprehension of that. On the on the pro Kremlin side as well, but yes, I was struck by the fact that, for instance, when I asked people about you know the um, the erotic calendar for Putin, very few people said anything about how that was um, just in and of itself kind of sexist or objectifying of women's bodies, and nobody really talked about that in the way that I think they that people would have in you know the political activists probably would have um, in the United States. Although I didn't test that theory. Now, let's kind of dwell on this a bit more about the way pro-Kremlin and anti-Kremlin activists use gender norms and sexuality in their political activities. Um, youth particularly focus on the role of youth groups in this. How, how do they deploy these concepts? Yeah, um, well, the, uh, the pro-Kremlin ones um, and, you know, and well, OK, so the pro-Kremlin youth groups deployed mostly, I think, women's bodies and sort of women's sexuality to support, um, you know, to support Putin. And this started, or at least the place that I saw it start was with the Moscow State University Journalism Department calendar for Putin in 2010 for his birthday. And then the following year, um, yeah, I guess it was 2011 in July, Putin's army um, held, held this Rip It for Putin contest where they asked people to send in videos of themselves ripping something or someone for Putin, you know, and so the advertisement for that was with this attractive young woman ripping her tank top off uh, for Putin. And uh, and then for the following, for his following birthday when he turned 59 in 2011, the same Putin's army baked a chocolate cake for him and they put out a, a video of it. And of course, while they're making the cake, they're only wearing, you know, underpants and, you know, and long sleeve white tops and they're, you know, doing all the sort of semi-pornographic things like squirting whipped cream into their mouths and, you know, and stuff like that. So there are a number of those sorts of, um, there were a number of those sorts of events um, that were pieces of publicity that were, you know, that were provided to the public as a way of showing that Putin was an attractive, heterosexual, ideal man. Um, on the other side, there is not a lot of mobilization, in other words, on the um, on the anti-Kremlin side, there's not a lot of mobilization of women's sexuality. I think what I noticed more there was some of the homophobia being aimed back at Putin, you know, ways of trying to undermine the masculine image as a way of trying to undermine his legitimacy. So I recall after um, the 2011 elections in December, 
um, during Putin's massive press conference, you know, he gives one of these giant press conferences every year. Um, one of the anti-Kremlin activists tweeted out um, about Putin calling him hashtag Botox you know, to say that, uh, you know, that he, like a woman, right, was engaging in plastic surgery to make himself look better. There were songs on the web, you know, that went around on YouTube. There was one that goes, uh, Putin is a fag, you know, just very obvious, overt things. There was a demonstration where people were supposed to show up wearing a t-shirt, you know, wearing t-shirts that said, Putin is a fag. And so I think that's kind of, I think that's the way it works more anti, um, on the anti-Kremlin side. Now, that said, one of the things I looked at with the youth groups was their position on conscription and the draft. And one of, um, one of the ways that the anti-Kremlin, you know, anti-conscription, anti-draft groups um, talked about this was that, you know, you can, you can be a man, um, but, by, but you, you exercise or you show your masculinity by making choices, right? Not just by automatically being drafted into the armed services. Um, so it's more about making individual choices and asserting yourself as an, um, as an individual. And also, I remember there was a there was a women's protest against the draft um, by a group calling themselves um, Girls Against the Draft, and their position was that the um, that kind of army won't make you a man, right? But like a private contract army, maybe you know, but not that kind, not the kind that the Russian state is offering. So, what would be the alternative discourse of masculinity then, if it's not the one that's being prescribed by the state? Then, what's what is what will make you a man if if the military won't? I think from the anti-Kremlin perspective, what what I noticed was a, and and I don't know that this is, um, I don't know that this would be more widespread than just sort of among the activists in the groups, but I think there's a certain there's a certain masculinity that goes along with defying the regime, you know, being willing to take risks, being willing to be arrested, being willing to go against this incredibly powerful regime. Um, I remember asking the leader of Maladyozhnaya Yablaka, so the youth wing of, um, of the Yablaka party, and, you know, asking him, so, you know, what do you think engaging in this movement says about you as a man? And he laughed and he said, well, he said, I think the Dievushki like the bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was actually a very serious person, you know, and, and he and he talked about that a little. He talked a little bit about that. He said, I, I think that women and men, you know, notice when we go out and we take risks and we have these small demonstrations and we immediately, you know, get arrested, you know, the women and the men who take part in this, um, you know, I think people respect that. And, you know, and I don't know if he thought of that as being particularly masculine per se, but as sort of being, being brave and courageous and the kinds of attributes that often go along with masculinity. I, I find it actually quite interesting that the central role of Putin in all of this, where Russian gender politics and the other external activist politics around it seem to revolve, uh, I mean, Putin is personally connected to the state, yeah. And this respect and it and and politics doesn't at least in these gender discourses do, don't seem to function outside of any other kind of political realms. Uh, would you say that's the case, or am I overstating things? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I know what you mean about Putin being central to it. I'm not sure I understand what you meant at the end about politics. Say it again. Um, in the sense of uh, political activity and, and the roles of gender, is there a space in which maybe here I'm speaking of the fem have you talk about the feminist movement and what feminists in Russia do in terms of their activism and if it deviates from this kind of central role of Putin equals the state? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, um, I think that one of the I think that one of the reasons. Um, why? Well, I, th I think one of the reasons that women and, and feminists are motivated to protest in Russia is precisely because of the hypermasculinity, in a way, of of the state. One of the implications, right, of Putin as the as the alpha male, um, and one of the implications of all this homophobia in politics and of the real split between masculine and feminine. Gender roles. One of the implications of that is that politics is not for women, 
right? That, that, that that's part of the, you know, that's a role that, um, you know, that women aren't supposed to play. And I think that it's not, it's not only about Putin and masculinity and the state, but I think it also has, I think the motivation for feminism also has to do with countering the Russian Orthodox Church, which very much is in support of Putin and of the state. And I think for Putin's part, he's adopted this very kind of conservative nationalist ideology and that Putin and the state almost rely upon each other to reinforce those ideas. So how does this work out in politics? Well, there was, uh, there's one priest that a couple of, he was a, you know, a popular uh, priest. He has his website and everything. He was explaining that uh, women really should not have married women, shouldn't have the right to vote. Uh, why? Because what if she votes contrary to her husband? You know, she's negated his vote <laughs> and, that's, and that's not okay. Right. So the church has, you know, a very definite idea about gender roles and they are not from the church's perspective, gender roles, they are sex roles, right? They're inherently biologically determined. Um, Patriarch Kirill said, I think it was last year, maybe in 2013, he said feminism is an incredibly dangerous phenomenon because it encourages women to think that their main role is not necessarily their childbearing role. And he said feminism could destroy the motherland even, you know, that it's incredibly, incredibly destructive. So, so feminists have a, a good motivation to protest in Russia, and there's been a fair amount of um, there's been a fair amount of feminist protest in Russia, even beyond um, Pussy Riot. Uh, there's a there's a sexist of the year competition, which just uh, it, it's happened every year, I think, since 2010 or 2011, and they just announced the uh, the candidates for sexist of the year, and you can vote for them. Um, on the web, <laughs> and there's never any lack of, you know, there's never any lack of candidates, unfortunately. But um, but this year, and, and the sexist of the year competition is not just for sexist of the year, but then there's like the most anti-feminist statement made by a woman in Russia, and then there's the most sexist advertisement, and then there's the most sexist policy. But just to speak of um, the sexist of the year competition in 2014. Um, it's between three people. It's between the head of the Tennis Federation, the Russian Tennis Federation, who called uh, Venus and Serena Williams the Williams brothers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then contrasted them, of course, to like the proper femininity of, you know, Russia's female tennis stars. Uh, that was one. Another was this uh, uh, Yegor Halmagorov who is, I guess, a publicist, journalist type, um, who apparently, and I don't know what the context was for this, but he said, when we take over um, America, we are going to pass um, a, secret, um, a secret decree giving men the permission to punch in the face anyone who uses the word sexist. <laughs> and then he says, and of course, someone's going to say to me, oh, but, you know, punching women in the face isn't Camille Faux. Uh, but what I say to that is once a woman has pronounced the word sexist, she ceases to be a woman and becomes an, a second class object. All right. So he was he's candidate number two. And then candidate number three this year was Zhirinovsky. I don't know if you saw um, if, if you saw the video of this, but Zhirinovsky was at a press conference last year in the Duma. And and a female journalist asked him a question about Maidan. And he really blew up. You know, he said that she was bloodthirsty, and he started talking about this, quote, investigative journalism, ha, 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 film that was being shown um, a couple days later on NTV, on, um, on NTV, called Furies of the Maidan. And the, the, the hypothesis of this Furies of the Maidan film, and Jarovsky then proceeded to talk about this, was that the reason that women go out and protest in the Maidan is because they don't get, they're not having enough sex, right? They have, you know, they have a beast. Um, you know, they all have, uh, uh, what did he He said to her something like, you have a beast between your legs. And then he said, um, all the women in the Maidan have um, hysteria, right? and that without that kind of hysteria, the, um, the Maidan wouldn't have happened. And then he says, um, and then he says to this journalist, he tells one of his male assistants to go over and brutally rape her. He actually, he actually says that. Um, and then another female journalist pushes, you know, Zhirinovsky's assistant away and says, you know, this journalist here that you're attacking is pregnant. And then Zhirinovsky says, oh, she's pregnant. She shouldn't even be here. She should be at home. 
you know, minding her baby. And you pointed to the other female journalist, you know, you're a lesbian. And, you know, and you pregnant woman shouldn't be hanging out with lesbians. And I mean, it was just the most remarkable thing to see, you know, on video at a, you know, at an actual Duma press conference. But anyway, so he's candidate number three. Well, it sounds like we have a winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think he's a likely winner this year. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, this, now this discourse, of course, you, you know, connect it to uh, patriotism and, and patriotism having a very kind of masculine undertones. Um, in terms of the last year or so with the conflict in Ukraine, have you witnessed similar gendered and sexualized discourses being being deployed around the relationship between Russia, Ukraine, Ukraine and the West, Russia and the West? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and it starts, it actually starts after the 2004 um, Ukrainian revolution, right? After, um, after the first Maidan, when the gas prices that Russia was imposing on Ukraine were increased. Um, there were protests by, you know, by pro-Kremlin Russians, um, I think outside the U.S. embassy, saying that the U.S. should be paying Ukraine's debts. And the poster said, a gentleman always pays for his girlfriend. <laughs> you know? So yes, what is Ukraine? Ukraine is, you know, is just the girlfriend and, and, uh, and the U.S. is, is the boyfriend. But more, more recently, um, Absolutely, you can see um, you can absolutely see some of that. The there was recently a a song that went viral on the web again. Um, you know, and this is a song by a Russian woman singer from Novosibirsk named Mashani. Yes, and right. So this song that you probably uh, you probably saw it's called My Putin, right? And Mashani sings it wearing the tricolor, you know, wearing the the Russian flag colors, wearing this dress made out of red, white, and uh, and blue big stripes. And she sings this song saying, oh, you know, you're Putin, my Putin. Um, I want to be with you. Take me with you. I'm calling after you. Take me with you. you know, I want to be with you, etc." And And in the video, she sings it both dressed as Russia. And then midway through, she actually changes into a Ukrainian flag dress. So she's in blue and yellow singing the same song. And what, where she's singing it is in this kind of brick building with all this rubble at the bottom. So it's like this bombed out brick building. And, you know, and she's saying, oh, you know, we should, we should run after him. Like we should, we should follow him. Yes. You know, that's what we should do is Ukraine, you know, now wants to be with Putin. <laughs> so there's absolutely the feminization, at least in that song, you know, of Ukraine as this entity that if it knew what it was doing, if it was smart, it would follow Putin. And, Putin. and finally, um, as, as you point out in the book, the use of gender discourses in politics is, is certainly not unique to Russia. So what, what does this type of discourse tell us about Russia and the Russian political system? I think it tells us that Russia, in that sense, has, has a lot in common with political systems in, in the rest of the world. You know, one, um, one example that I can give you just from the United States in terms of being close to home um, Last year, the year before, Sarah Palin was comparing Barack Obama with Vladimir Putin. And she said, when people think of Vladimir Putin, they think of a guy who wrestles bears and drills for oil. Yeah, the American right wing is are quite kind of enamored with Putin in a very strange much, way. Very much in love with Putin as this man's man who loves his country and, and so forth. So, so Palin says that about Putin. And then she says about Obama, when they think about our president... They think of a guy who wears mom jeans, right? So sort of feminizing the leader. So that these techniques of trying to insult your political opponents um, by feminizing them is, you know, is something that Russia now has in common with a lot of other places. Now, is it a little, I guess when I think about Russia, I see it as being a little more extreme, a little more overt, um, a little more uh, obvious and maybe a little more overdetermined because of the things that we were talking about at the beginning, because of you know the sort of remasculinization of Russia. That's a term that um, two Russian social scientists, uh, Tatyana Ryabova and Alek Ryabov, talk about the need to kind of remasculinize Russia and get Russia back on its feet um, as a strong, tough uh, country that can pursue its own national interests. So in that sense, the political context in Russia is conducive to the use of masculinity and femininity and homophobia in politics. That was Valerie Sperling, professor of political science at Clark University and author of Sex, Politics, and Putin, 
political legitimacy in Russia. I'm Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and follow me on Twitter at Sean's Russia Blog. Until next week, bye. Моя Женой.